Welcome to the MyLifeInConcert.com podcast. I'm your host, Various Artists, and please join me as I travel back and revisit every live show I've seen from 1975 to the present. As I discussed in Part 1, Episode 29A, titled Changes, Bowie, The 70s, and Me, I talk about hearing David Bowie's Space Oddity and Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side just a couple of weeks apart, but within two weeks, in tandem with 1972 turning into 1973, and also me finally hitting the double-digit age of 10, and how those songs had a profound and lifelong-lasting impact on me. This glittering new underground in rock was fascinating, transgressive and felt welcoming and don't forget those platform shoes those songs launched me as a fan of both with bowie in particular creating a big impact on my life in the 70s as well as on the culture at large as he surfed through waves of chameleon-like changes that made him a patron saint for artsy outsiders everywhere after releasing one of his finest albums in 1980 scary monsters and super creeps and after having relentlessly been in the public eye since the release of his rise and fall of ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars album in june 1972 bowie largely disappeared for several years in the early 80s something that was just pretty much unheard of for most rock stars at that level of success at this time his retreat from the spotlight had been driven by the assassination of his good friend, John Lennon. It shook Bowie to the core, and he stepped back from his public and creative life for a rethink. Now, in his absence, Bowie's fan base had to look back on and assess his creative vapor trail. Uh, again, in England, there was a KTAL Best Of, and it was a huge hit I think in 1981. It may have hit number one. And uh, meanwhile, well, wide swaths of the music pouring out from the British Isles at that time owed some form of debt to him. And also for myself, this was a period when I began to slowly reinvestigate music from the past overall. I mean, I already was invested in that, but I've been very much, and also still now, new. What's new? What's happening? And going back and really examining his output retrospectively just deepened my obsessiveness during this time, as it did with a number of music mad pals that I knew. We were, you know, we wanted something. It really deepened my fanaticism, if anything. So owing to his ongoing influence, he was everywhere yet nowhere. An absence makes the heart grow fonder, as they say. So it was with jubilant surprise and delight that I opened the Christmas 1982 edition of the NME and was greeted with the announcement that Bowie would be coming out with a new album in 1983 and undertaking a major international tour. I'm going to read you the clip from the NME from the uh, Christmas Day issue of the New Musical Express 1982. Bowie tour definitely on. David Bowie has now confirmed officially that he will begin a world tour in March and will be on the concert trail through until November, as Enemy accurately forecast two weeks ago. The tour, his first for more than five years, will take him to Europe, Britain, North America, and the Far East, probably in that order. His full global schedule is being lined up by International Talent Group of New York, working in conjunction with the TBA agency in this country. Bowie's officially spokesman said that this week, the precise dates and venues will be announced in the new year. Meanwhile, Bowie himself is at present in Europe working on a new album, which will be released worldwide shortly before the opening of the tour. Well, he ended up recording the album in New York, and of course the tour started a bit later than initially forecast, but there it was. It was on. Hey everybody, welcome to the MyLifeInConcert.com podcast. I'm your host, Various Artists, and this is episode 29, concert number 22B. Jump into the time machine with me, dear listeners, and come along as I go back to the most exciting concert of my life, 
David Bowie with Rough Trade, CNE Stadium, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Saturday, September 3rd, 1983. And this episode is entitled Let's Dance. The original ticket cost $22.50, which is $59 when adjusted when adjusted for uh, inflation for 2023. So the concert I mean, at the time that concert was a lot of money but it goes to show you how expensive shows are today because 59 dollars for an a-list act would be a steal in these times so expensive them expensive then and cheap now greetings dear listeners both new and returning and thanks for tuning in now this second half of a two-part set of podcast episodes uh, it follows part one, episode 29A, which was entitled, which is entitled, Changes Bowie, the 70s and Me, which is based on the mylifeinconcert.com blog entry of the same name that I original, originally wrote back in 2013 on Open Salon. Now, in that first of these two episodes, I look back at Bowie's career from Liza Jane, his first single in 1964, through until 1983's Let's Dance, 20 years later, and also reflect on the sweeping socio-cultural changes that went down during the 70s, a decade that Bowie certainly helped shape, and how all of this impacted me as I grew up during that incredible time. But if you're primarily interested in hearing about the show, then you've come to the right place. This was the single most anticipated concert I had ever been to, and boy, it did not disappoint. Join me, oh listeners, as I recount the day I spent with my old pal, Miss B. Uh, I introduced her in episode 21 on The Gang of Four uh, in London, and she's also in The Beat and R.E.M. episode 24. Uh, the two of us, along with 60,000 other fans, all of whom were going absolutely freaking bananas as we mosey on down to a packed CNE Exhibition Stadium on Sunday night, uh, the Sunday night of a sweltering Labor Day weekend in 1983, for the Thin White Duke. He was on his global Serious Moonlight tour for his worldwide smash hit album, Let's Dance, with the great Rough Trade opening the show and warming up the troops. And I'm also giving some time over to Rough Trade, another great act who impacted me upon their arrival in the 1970s. Uh, I just quickly want to remind everyone to check out the MyLifeInConcert.com website and blog, chronicling this and many other shows between 75 and now. Uh, and the original blog entries have extra information, photos, ephemera, the original ticket, videos, and related Spotify playlists. And on the topic of Spotify playlists, you can also hear um, you can hear my playlist that I have up under my username, various artists, but because of that name, it might be easier to search for mylifeinconcert.com or M-L-I-C followed by a prompt as all of my playlists start that way or simply follow me on Spotify. Now I've created two uh, playlists for um, the set of episodes, a short one and a long one. The short one is M-L-I-C, David Bowie, time span C90, 1964 to 2016, a cassette length overview of Bowie's whole career, cherry picking the best of each uh, LP or era from 1964 to 2016, of course, my choices. And I've been making these time span playlists. I've got one up for Marianne Faithful and John Cale, which is sort of a quick and dirty right through their whole career. And I'm going to be making most of, more, more of those uh, at a cassette length for a more bite-sized compilation. Uh, but the other one is the really long one, MLIC Prompt, David Bowie, Goldmine, my favorite 
deep cuts, outtakes, and live tracks, 1964 to 1983. So five plus hours of Bowie rarities, obscurities, and lesser heard and live cuts from his first 20 years as a recording artist. Great for a long drive, a walk, or a run, or while working on a project, or simply to throw on shuffle. So they're both on Spotify and on uh, on the website. Also, please like, follow, and subscribe on our Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as our YouTube channel, which features not only the podcast, but live clips from footage that uh, Covlet and I have shot over the years, along with vintage clips. And also remember to hit that notification bell for new episodes where applicable. Okay, back to the podcast, picking up from where I left off at the end of episode 29A. I was over the moon and on the phone ringing up friends instantly with the news. Not only hadn't he issued an album in three years, but he hadn't toured in five. And there was no way I was missing out on seeing him. So exactly 10 years on from my first hearing Space Oddity and that orbit across the airwaves, Bowie was back, and this time I'd be seeing him live. Now, in my corner of the world, interest ran high for this new David Bowie album. What bold new step forward would this upcoming release portend? What adventurous new direction would his sound take? In my mind, I had this idea that it would be some sort of merge between sort of the synth pop along with sort of noisy, angular, post-punk experimentation. Something like the Human League meets the birthday party. Uh, and I also knew that Sheik's Nile Rogers had supplanted Tony Visconti in the producer's chair, and I was really getting into Sheik a lot in the early 80s. And so that was potentially interesting for me. Um, I was thinking maybe it was perhaps going to be sort of an avant funk kind of thing, uh, a bit like the Gang, for, Gang of Four Solid Gold or Compadres, the Talking Heads Remain in Light album, or maybe even 1982's Thermonuclear Sweat by Defunct, led by that other Bowie, Joseph. I was also stoked to learn that he was doing a cover of Iggy Pop's China Girl on the album, the song from The Idiot. And that song, which was my favorite song on the album, the fact that he was thinking about the song, Bowie was thinking about that song, um, and tap, I just confirmed he was tapping into the right vein. His headspace was in the right place, and that something bold and special was about to be unleashed after four years of anticipation. So on the morning of its release, I was standing outside the front doors of Records on Wheels on Dundas Street in London, Ontario, ready to purchase the very first copy they had. So I bought one of the first copies in the city. And I was probably back home by 10 a.m. with the warm, fresh vinyl spinning on my turntable as I queued up side one with immense anticipation. And it turned out that this brand new album was... Uh... Um, um, not, not bad. Hmm. Once again, Bowie had thrown his audience a curveball, except this time it resulted in a David Bowie album that was something his output had never been before. Bland. It, it wasn't awful. It was just missing that element that had made his 1969 to 80 work something special. Now, I did like it. I liked the album, and it grew on me in the weeks and months ahead to the point where I liked it very, very much. I liked it a lot. And I, I love the meshing of then-emerging Stevie Ray Vaughan's bluesy guitar licks with the dancey grooves. Um, I thought that really worked. It sounded great in the dance clubs as well, and most of the people I knew, everyone I knew, had purchased it and were playing it, so it was overall hard to avoid. And it was definitely a key soundtrack of that time for me, especially along with the talking heads speaking in tongues. And I have a list of albums up. Uh, on I've, on the uh, one Bowie, the 70s and me, I have a bunch of albums that, that I was listening to in 73, early 74, and on the one for the actual 83 concert. I have albums I was listening to in 83 and early 84. And of course, Let's Dance is one of them. How, well, 
I've got uh, several others, less dances mentioned in the article. But anyway, regardless, well outside of my circle, Let's Dance, of course, turned into a full-on multi-hit, multi-million selling blockbuster. And it took him from being one of probably the biggest cult act in the world to an unqualified across-the-board superstar. But I never loved it. Not like I had his previous work and still don't. I love it. I like it a lot. But even his weakest albums from the 69 to 80 period are better than this one. So I like it a lot, but I've never been able to fully, completely, 100% get on board. And it wasn't because of the popularity. I'm not one of those people where, oh, I have my own, I've, this actually drives me crazy. And I've talked about this, where I have my own special favorite precious artists and I don't want anyone else knowing about them. They've just got to be my little kid thing. And if they get popular, I'm not going to like them. And I know there's a lot of that. God, I hate that attitude. I hate it. That's not what I, how or what I think at all. So that had nothing to do with it. It was down to the tunes and the production. The latter a little too glossy and smooth, the former just a little too slight and obvious. Now again, Trinka writes about this in Starman, about how the shock of Lennon's assassination totally rearranged Bowie's priorities, and you can feel it in this album, that all-absorbing passion that's so present on his 70s work, the 70s work, it's just gone here. Um, and indeed, Trinka writes about the videos for the album, which were quite stunning. He was more interested in the videos than, than the songs. He had just really been through a shock and was a bit removed and also wanted to make a lot of money as he'd lost a lot of cash because um, his later 70s albums weren't as popular because um, they're very experimental. But it just... Mm. And as for that cover of China Girl I'd been looking forward to, I'm glad he did it. He did it for the right reasons. I'm sure Iggy Pop made a ton of money off of that, which helped him set his life up because Iggy was going through a rough patch at this time. And I've written about Iggy's 1982 concert in London and a few episodes back. Hear that one. It was a crazy gig, but it wasn't a good time for his career. So I appreciate why Bowie did it. But, you know, his cover version for me isn't even a patch on the original that Iggy did on The Idiot. So, you know, I was glad Bowie had ditched the cone of silence. He was back. He had a new album. He was doing a show. Um, and it was also a multi-pronged attack as he had three new movies out. Um, there was the fun, campy The Hunger alongside Catherine Deneuve, Su uh, Susan Sarandon, and Bauhaus were in it doing that great version of Bela Lugosi's Dead. And it was filled with new wavy vampirism and playboy lesbianism. And then a little later in the year, there was a cinema release for, as I mentioned earlier, Ziggy Stardust, the motion picture, um, or Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders. Anyway, Ziggy Stardust, the motion picture. That's what I was talking about earlier. And, and I remember seeing that with Le Chateau and perhaps Lady B at either the Capitol or Century Cinemas on Dundas Street. And then finally, there was a very serious film, um, Nagisa Oshima's somber World War, World War II film, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. But the big news was the tour, the Serious Moonlight Tour, uh, the world tour, and there was going to be a stop in Toronto at the massive CNE Stadium. Now, even though I had unsteady and low-paying when I even got it employment during this recession ravaged time that really hit me hard i've i've had some great timing in my life and some really bad timing and this was one of them so i was, really didn't have a lot of money in and around this time so i made sure to sock away cash in anticipation of this gig and i was suitably verklempt to get general floor tickets for the event taking place on labor day weekend saturday september 3rd in fact Ticket demand in Toronto was so high that a second show had to be added. And Toronto's always had a massive, massive love for David Bowie. Now, my partner in crime for this outing was Miss B, who I've talked about in a few other episodes. I have no idea why my pals, you know, Lady B or special guests, why they didn't attend this one because they were big, big fans. Maybe it was money. Um, and amazing. However, amazingly, I've mentioned 
Count Mara in other episodes. Um, a friend of mine from back in the day who I found out has passed. I'll say his name. It was Dan Patterson. And he almost never went to ticketed events or he, he splashed out for this one and took in the Sunday night show. And I think he did that at the last moment. Now, my sister and brother-in-law, Vivian, and uh, my brother-in-law, Rick, well named, unfortunately have both passed. Um, and many of, you would have, many of you would have known him on the London scene as Sparky. Um, they splashed out uh, and, and they went... Uh, but they wanted seats and to st sit up in the stands. And there's no way I wanted to force my way to as close to the front of the stage as possible it was, as it was all open seating on the floor. There was no chairs. It was just standing. I wanted to get as close to the bowiness of it all and bask in it. Now, fortuitously, Miss B had a brother who lived in Toronto not far from the CNE. Um, and he was also out of town that weekend, so we had a place to crash, which was sweet as I was pretty broke. So that was great on all counts. Um, now, this was my fourth time at CNE Stadium in little over a year, as I'd already <laughs> endured the bad drugs nightmare that was the second police picnic in 1982. I've talked about that in episode 17. And then there was the Wowie Narcotic Fiesta that was the third police picnic, which had taken place just a month previous to the show. Uh, I was actually on a bit of a roll that month because also in between the police and Bowie was that amazing Marianne Faithful club gig at Freifogel's um, here in London. I've talked about that on the previous episode, 28. And I had also been here a year earlier to the day on Sunday night of the 1982 Labor Day weekend for, again, one of the best gigs and one of the best double bills of my life, The Clash with Black Uhuru. Um, and that night, it wasn't the full stadium. It was partitioned into the grandstand configuration. So rather than 60,000, that was 19,000 for The Clash. But And I've talked about that in episode 18. So the two of us arrived in Toronto early afternoon, dropped our stuff off at her brother's place, and spent the day just hanging out at the exhibition. Now, one key memory I always attach to this day is of Miss B buying a bamboo steamer um, and then having to hang on to it throughout the gig. So we're in this packed crowd and she's clutching, having to clutch on to her bamboo steamer. So as the evening hours arrived, we decided to head in and try to stake out a place on the floor. And we were pleased to find ourselves about one third of the way back from the stage. I was also really pleased that one of my favorite Canadian bands, Rough Trade, featuring the great, the one, the only Carol Pope, that Rough Trade were opening the show. Now, this sexually provocative, funky-come-new-wave band were just a perfect choice. Being children, of the gram being children of the glam revolution that Bowie had left after picking up the baton from uh, Mark Bolan. Now, I want to take some time to talk about Rough Trade as the uh, openers. Now, they are coming up way down the line with some reunion shows, but I want to talk about them now. Who knows if I'll ever get there, live and get there that far in the series. Let's hope. Because um, people are just dropping like flies. Flies these days, you never know. So this is a band I love so much. They were part of the concert. So I want to take some time here to discuss them. And I always see Rough Trade as emblematic of this change, good change in Canadian culture. Now, Canada, of course, is still, a, all things considered in the world, it's a pretty young country. And we're in the shadows of both the U.S. and the U.K. because so many people initially had come here from the U.K. And there's so many great artists, Canadian artists from the 60s, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen, the band. I am massive fans of all four. But all of them headed south to create their mark, to leave their mark and launch their career. It was hard to stay here and focus on Canada and have a thriving career and go outside the borders or whatever. For me, the mid-70s arrival of two entities, Rough Trade and SCTV, the television show. Now, Second City had originated in Chicago, but Toronto had its own Second City troupe, and it's that, it's the Toronto troupe that created SCTV, Second City Television. 
And for me, in my mind, these two entities mark the emergence of a new Canada that has its own perspectives, talents, and takes on things. Both band and the TV show were completely unique and original. Rough trade, they were hard to pigeonhole proposition right from the start. Uh, they arose in the last days of glam, presaged elements of punk, but really weren't part of either. They sort of existed in a realm of their own. Um, now, the group's backing lineup changed frequently through different iterations, with the core two members being songwriters and you know creative cores, Carol Pope and guitarist Kevin Staples. They were really the only consistent members. Now, Pope and Staples had met during the late 60s in Toronto, putting Rough Trade together after several years of previous band permutations. Their sound was initially very R&B-based, married to then-shocking sh then satirical subject matter steeped in gay and S&M subcultures and iconography, right down to the group's name. The band itself went through several iterations during the later 70s, attracting media attention and a tribe of devoted fans in staid, old-school Toronto um, and the region of yore. Now, I'd first heard about them in 1975 in an issue of rock scene magazine and i've discussed this magazine several times and how it introduced me to the new york punk scene and this particular issue was very significant because i was introduced to three entities that have been influential and i've loved throughout the entirety of my life one was rough trade they were mentioned sort of in a new bands page the other one was john waters as Female Trouble was just coming out, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I'm a lifelong Waters nut. And that's where I first heard about these pictures from, heard about it through these pictures from this movie. Like, what the hell is this? I don't know what it is, but I have to know about it. And the other one was Blondie, an introduction to Blondie in 1975. And I have talked about seeing Blondie in 2014. That blog is up on the podcast, and I have a picture of the page from Rock Scene Magazine, where I first heard of them. Meanwhile, back to Rough Trade, they started playing around, and I remember my, my siblings and their friends going to see them at Freifogels in the mid-70s and just raving about them. So they eventually began making frequent trips to New York City, where they cultivated a following. In fact, Lou Reed became a fan and later poached a few of the members for his own backing group um, at that time. So that's one of the reasons why the lineup kept changing. Now, I'd also like to mention, there's a few clips online. Uh, Peter Zosky, who is a Canadian media person, he had a late-night talk show here for a couple of years, and Rough Trade were on twice. First, early on, um, with sort of their mid-'70s look. The second one was several months later, and they're still playing in that R&B vein of the first album, but they've now got the punk look happening, and... Uh, I believe Carol Pope's wearing like a jumpsuit with zippers and all that kind of thing. Anyway, I absolutely love those clips and rewatch them. And of course they do birds of a feather, which is their Earl, their first real sort of major song that a lot of people knew. And in doing it, the piano flourish at the beginning, I hear Carol Pope singing part of the Mary Hartman theme, which is, was my other big obsession of the time. And one of my favorite shows of all time. So, they eventually released their debut, this limited edition direct-to-disc recording, which meant they recorded it live in the studio as it was cut into the record, um, called Live, released, I don't know if it was right at the end of 76 or beginning of 77, but it was released then. And, oh man, I absolutely love this album. I'm so glad I picked it up when it was briefly on CD in the 90s, because it's not on Spotify and Carol Pope herself, in her great book, Anti-Diva, which I'll be reading from later, um, says she's not keen on the first album. It just broke my heart, because um, I still love it. I still play it all the time. I think it's an amazing album, amazing songs. What she likes about the album is what I don't like, and it's the production. Um, because of how they do it, I feel the production is a little too antiseptic, but I absolutely love rough trade live that first album of course it's live in the studio 
Now, later in the decade, the group were eventually signed to CBS Distributed True North Records up here in 1980, and their major label debut from later that year, Avoid Freud, sported more of a new wave kind of sound and and a cover designed by the legendary Toronto art collective General Idea. And it was a huge hit here in Canada. It was a platinum-selling hit and launched them into the national consciousness here. And they had two hits from the album. One of them, one was Fashion Victim, the other one, High School Confidential. And it was one of the first overtly lesbian theme hits anywhere in the world. And the song, it's still a staple of Canadian radio. You'll be standing in a bank or a dentist's office and you'll hear, you know, Carol Pope trilling about, she makes me cream my jeans when she comes my way, you know, wafting out of, you know, wafting out of banks and dentist's office everywhere. Uh, they, and also SCTV and Rough Trade were linked as Rough Trade appeared on SCTV in a preteen world segment, which is hilarious. So I've been playing those first two albums consistently for 40 plus years now, and I never get tired of either, although all of their follow-up albums are terrific too. The very last one is maybe not quite as good as the others, but they're, it's, it, they're fantastic. As for Birds of a Feather, listen to it, but there's the original version and then there's the re-recorded version from a compilation. I'm not too keen on the re-recorded version. It's a bit shrill. But if you're listening to it and it starts with a piano flourish intro, that's the version you need to hear. And here in Canada, they regularly hit the albums and singles charts all through the first half of the decade. Now, I've already written about seeing Carol Pope do a live show. It's part of one of my compilation gigs, um, a number 99. Um, uh, oh, sorry, for concert number 170, it's a compilation episode called The Shape I'm In. And I'll write more about Rough Trade way down the line via a, a 2001 reunion tour and gig. Uh, that'll come up as um, concert number 99. Now, um, at the time of this concert, they were, they were opening for Bowie. They were promoting their soon-to-be-released fifth album, Weapons. That's a good one. And um, in Pope's Canadian best-selling autobiography from 2000, Anti-Diva, which I was just mentioning, she devotes four pages to this show, them opening for Bowie in Toronto, um, some other Canadian, and they also, also open some other dates on the Canadian tour. And Carol is such a talented, witty writer that the whole four entertaining pages are worth a read regarding these gigs. And indeed, the entire book uh, is a page uh, is a page turner filled with her wry observations and recollection recollections both sad and funny um, with a particularly poignant chapter on her year-long relationship with the very troubled Dusty Springfield. So anyway, both Pope and Kevin Staples they were major Bowie fans and they were pretty stoked to be landing this prestigious gig. And in recalling the Saturday night concert in Toronto, she writes, and this is a quote. Quote, backstage, this is from Anti-Diva, backstage before the show, we had a vision, to quote Mariah Carey. Bowie was coming down the hallway, the image of an untouchable rock god. He was impeccably dressed in seafoam colored suit, in a seafoamed colored suit that complemented his eyes, one green, one blue. His hair was quite possibly spun from gold. Our retinas still burning from the splendor that was Bowie, we checked out our dressing rooms. Then we went to get free food. There was none of the usual cheese trays with food that you could mold into Play-Doh-like shapes and luncheon meat, luncheon meat you could hurl at the wall and it would stick. There were sushi chefs, a fully stocked bar, and all manners of perks and obsequiousness. We were loving the alien. When it was time for us to play... We gazed out on the sweating masses melting in the humid Toronto weather. Halfway through our set, I noticed Bowie standing at the side of the stage. I could have thrown up from fear, but opted for the more positive and narcissistic, Oh my God, David Bowie is looking at me. I'm being watched by David Bowie. Anyway, we pulled off the stage, we piled off the stage after our set, we were so high, we actually committed a group hug. So that's um, a quote from Anti-Diva. And indeed, Bowie wanted them to do more dates on the tour. 
and in one of these crazy making corporate decisions you know they were trying to promote the band the band needed funds from cbs canada to go on the tour they were going to be opening a pile of dates for bowie in the states and they said no like a once in a lifetime offering gone anyway very very frustrating so rough trade pulled out a terrific opening set that was really well received by the partying masses if you liked one you tended to like the other once they had left the stage the countdown was truly on the anticipation was physically palpable you could literally touch the electricity in the air i'd been waiting 10 years for this and when you're 20 which i was at this time that accounts for a massive chunk of your remembered life so plenty of terrific uh, plenty of um, terrific tunes blared through the pa system between sets and um, it was just <laughs> this interminable seeming wait for him to come on. And I've watched a clip back um, from the news. And indeed, he did come on late. The song I distinctly remember coming on the PA shortly before his arrival was the Talking Heads Burning Down the House. You know, and as I've mentioned, Speaking in Tongues, that album, that was probably the album of the summer in my group. And Blue Order's New Monday is probably the defining single with Let's Dance and Tongues permanently intertwined in the gray matter hard drive between my ears. They just, both of those albums, they were everywhere. If you had one, you had the other. Indeed, there was a stadium-wide sing-along, which kind of giving me chills to remember, of burning down the house. Shortly thereafter, the house lights dimmed, the intro music pumped out through the system, and the packed house exploded in demonstrative euphoria if one had been able to tap into the energy in the frenzied moments framing either side of bowie stepping onto that stage it would have been enough to fuel a rocket launch into space there was an instant rush and crush to the front with uh, me and miss b and her bamboo steamer running along with the mad crowd crammed shoulder to shoulder perhaps a few hundred feet from the stage and i'm going to be honest when that happened that was really scary for about 15 or so seconds because remember the thing with the who had happened just a few years earlier in cleveland and it was just this whole force going forward and you just had to go with it so it was kind of scary for a bit but then it settled down we had our place and we were good now his band were on stage first and they featured two previous sidemen carlos alomar and earl slick so guitar player guitar players from different eras and additionally well actually no they're both on station to station so and additionally there was um sheik's drummer tony thompson and they had this killer horn section in tow the whole backing band of 10 were outfitted in a variety of multinational garb, uh, representing a diverse set of geographic regions, sort of like a united colors of Bowieton. But when David himself stepped into sight with his high 80s pastel suit, the mass congregation felt strung out in heaven's high. I was particularly impressed that he opened he opened the show with the propulsive look back and anger, one of Lodger's finest moments, which was fitting because the chorus is waiting so long. I've been waiting so long. And indeed we all were and had been both in terms of waiting for the show as well for over 10 years and waiting for the show to actually start. Um, so it, it also let fans like me know that, you know, right off the bat, he was throwing us some red meat, that there was going to be less obvious numbers. It wouldn't just be the big hits. There'd be a mix. So that was really cool. Now, initially he had his back to the stage when he was singing, uh, the opening verses to look back in anger, but just as he hit the chorus, he spun around and faced the crowd, a gleaming in the focus spotlight as people went positively batty. He clearly knew how to make an entrance, play a crowd, create drama, and pace a show so that it was consistently ratcheting up in some form, step by step. Ugh! So what were the highlights? Well, it featured a number of tunes that I've seen him do 
well, they went on to see him do many times through the years that just totally work as live numbers. Golden Years, Rebel Rebel, Fame, Gene Genie, Fashion, they all, those tunes always work live. Furthermore, okay, so I wasn't great on the material from Let's Dance. I thought it was a little slight, but all of the feature tracks he performed from the album came off really, really well live. They, If he was creating music that would be played well live, he did it. The tunes really worked. Alternately, there were a few numbers I was so glad he did, but turned out slightly flat because they're much more studio created. And the two that came to mind are two of my favorite Bowie songs of all time, Heroes and Ashes to Ashes. They didn't seem to have quite the same adrenalized impact. I saw him do those songs through the years, but it was really only on his last tour, the reality tour, that I feel he really got the arrangements right for a live show. There were also lots of wonderful surprises, starting with Look Back in Anger, opening the show. Um, first, he did Station to Station, as again, my favorite Bowie song, and TVC15 and Stay, and Golden Years as well, meaning that two-thirds of Station to Station was performed, and that's such a big fave. But also, I was talking about Low earlier, I didn't expect to hear music from Lowe except for Sound and Vision, which he didn't actually play. Instead, he did Breaking Glass and that stage arrangement of What in the World, the one where he does two run-throughs of the song. The first one um, is at a very slow speed and then a double speed. Um, so that was great when he did that. And also he did uh, play, he'd done it for years in his set, um, he performed the Velvet Underground's uh, tribute to speed, White Light, White Heat. And that was certainly relevant for Miss B and I on that day as well. The assorted moments of theatricality were essential to a show on this scale. And overall, they worked. Most memorably, he nicked the Hamlet skull routine uh, for Cracked Actor. And as with the Let's Dance, as with the Let's Dance album and the Serious Moonlight tour, um, it really it really showcased Bowie the singer. Although he did play acoustic guitar on Young Americans and Space Oddity, uh, the the performance of the latter. I mean, that's that's what connected me to him in the first place ten years previous. Now there were a bunch of wish list tunes that I thought I might hear but didn't including The Man Who Sold the World, Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, Changes, Boys Keep Swinging, and a few others. Still, given what he did perform, including so many surprises, I was not about to grouse. Now, he ended the main set with the only Ziggy tune of the night, Star, and he finished the encores fittingly with Modern Love from Let's Dance. And he had this, and he was waving his bye-byes while singing it, while a big blue globe bounced among the fans in the stadium. The show won rave reviews in the Toronto press, with the Toronto star's Peter Goddard calling it the biggest cabaret in history and larger than life in every way. Now, I have the star review posted up on the blog. I picked up the paper as we left town the next day. And also a link to a shot from one of the local networks that someone has posted online about the gig. It's very, very grainy, but it's there. So it's a neat sort of visual uh, video piece from the night. And I've got those linked in my mylifeinconcert.com blog entry for this show. Here's Peter Goddard's full uh, review of the show from the Toronto Star titled 60,000 Go Wild for Bowie. It was the biggest cabaret in history. David Bowie's Serious Moonlight Tour finally arrived in town last night to snarl traffic, to jam more than 60,000 fans in the CNE Stadium, and to make more than $2 million. But in every way, it was larger than life. The stage setup for the concert being repeated tonight with advanced sales of about 40,000 people already was a vast gridwork of steel that was tall enough to hide the Blue Jay scoreboard. The Bowie tour began in Brussels and will end in Australia later in the fall, grossing up to an estimated 15 million along the way. 
from Paris to New York, it has already broken many records. What made it different from the average mammoth rock show was the way people treated it. It was a night for Bowie's style, so they brought along their own style as well. But for some, the glamour didn't last long at all. So many were packed together so tightly directly in front of the stage, dozens fainted and were helped to a temporary first aid solution, first aid station near the stage itself. As for the star of the night, it was the return of the thin white millionaire. If anything, he looked even blonder than before. If anything, he had even more energy. The band, complete with horn section and two singers in striped blazers, filled the stage behind him uh, in an exotic South Pacific-style costumes. Last night's show ran like clockwork, the songs clicking neatly into place. Golden years, then fashion. Let's dance and on to China Girl. Scary Monsters, Rebel Rebel, White Light, White Heat. Essentially, it was the same show he's given us all along. What changed was the way he used it. In fact, what he offered was several different Bowies, such as 1. The Singer. He proved he might have the most chameleon-like voice in rock. On China Girl alone, it altered uh, in texture from a rough rasp to a childish whine. 2. The Showman. The walls in the Grandstands restaurant have pictures of the famous names Guy Lombardo, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, who've played the X, or the Canadian National Exhibition. Bowie, alone of all the rockers, could join this gallery. And finally, the businessman. He complained before the tour that he hadn't put much money aside, unlike other rock stars. This should help him catch up fast. So, a great review from Peter Goddard, although I think Rough Trade deserved a mention. And, once again, mentioning Carol Pope... As for her take on the show, she writes in Anti-Diva that, quote, When Bowie hit the stage, I stood riveted in the wings. He is a master of reinventing himself. I had seen him work before. The performance that stands out for me was the 1977, actually it was 1976, Station to Station tour, in which he was the thin white duke crooning like Sinatra, lit by blinding white spotlights shooting up into the sky in columns, the kind Albert Speer designed for Hitler at the Nuremberg rally. The incarnation I was watching now was a more accessible Bowie. David stood at the lip of the stage singing Modern Love, shaking one leg like Elvis. The show was an amalgamation of music and theater. While performing Cracked Actor, Bowie was seated in a director's chair wearing dark glasses. Like a new wave Hamlet, he sang a soliloquy to a skull. Hey, David, what dyke through yonder window break? Tis me. Uh, she goes on to reminisce, quote, During a break halfway through the show, David came up to me and we started to talk. He was sweet and wanted to dish. He knew I'd been with Dusty Springfield, but he had me confused with one of her other girls. He told me he really liked rough trade, which meant we could do more dates with him. He put his arms around me and we hugged. He was so slight I could have picked him up and carried him. Bowie grossed $2.3 million for that show. Anyway, back to me. It took me several days to come down from this one. I had huge expectations regarding seeing Bowie in concert and he totally surpassed them. After being knocked out uh, by the first of five shows I saw him at through the years... I can safely say this was truly one of the great performers of my time. He just had gobs of charisma to spare. You know, a lot of people are lucky to have seen him once. I feel super lucky to have seen him five times. There was, however, one significant thing missing from this performance, namely what the Sunday night show had that Saturday did not a surprise appearance by Mick Ronson. Rono just happened to be in Toronto that night, and for the first time since dissolving the Spiders on stage at the Hammersmith Odeon two years and ten months previous, uh, Bowie and Ronson played on a stage together again. Wait a minute, that's not true. Uh, That's not true because they did play together for the 1980 floor show, filmed at the marquee later in 73 regardless it had been 10 years 
As I'd mentioned earlier, the surprisingly in attendance Count Mara, who just, I think, went at the last moment because he was in Toronto. He said the place went ballistic when Ronson unexpectedly walked on the stage. He joined the band, I think it was for Gene Genie, and um, Count Mara rated it as, as one of the absolute highlights. Damn. Still, I got to be there on the first night, which has a specialness all its own. I can't complain. Um, now, Ronson himself recalled the event, specifically his getting aggressive with Earl Slick's guitar. So here's a quote. I had heard Slick play solos all night, so I decided not to play solos, and I just went out and thrashed the guitar. I really thrashed the guitar. I was waving the guitar above my head and all sorts of things. It was funny afterwards because David said, you should have seen Earl Slick's face, meaning he looked petrified. I had his prize guitar and I was swinging it around my head and Slick's going, wow, watch my guitar, you know? Uh, I was banging into it and it was going around my head. Poor Slick. I mean, I didn't know it was his special guitar. I just thought it was a guitar, a lump of wood with six strings. So that was Mick Ronson's memory of the Toronto appearance on the next night. By Saturday night's end, an exhausted Miss B and I were spent, thanking our lucky star man that we didn't have to travel far in order to get back to her brother's place and promptly collapse and not deal with all the insane traffic of everyone trying to leave. Um, alas, dear listeners, I am also pleased to let you know that, yes, the bamboo steamer arrived back safe and sound. The summer of 1983, and I've done a whole series of podcasts on shows for that summer, it had been a particularly memorable one for me because I'd found the tribe of people that I'd been looking for. I talked about that in the Gang of Four episode. So I had my new drinking buddies that were sort of of my age and saw so many shows. It was just one of the most memorable summers of my life, and I can't think of a better way to have ended it. As mentioned, I went on to see Bowie several times, um, and even if some were better, the last one in 2004 in Ottawa, I have a podcast and a bit of a blog entry up for that. In terms of music, like song choices, that was probably the best show I saw him play. But just in terms of the absolute excitement, it was this show in 83. In less wonderful news, Let's Dance turned out to be not a commercial blip on his radar but in fact a transitional album and not in the artistically significant sense that hunky dory diamond dogs or station to station had been instead let's dance can retrospectively be seen as bridging his truly innovative game-changing work in the 70s with his less consistent uneven to sometimes dreadful work that surfaced throughout the 80s. Bowie himself has addressed the long-term negative impact that the album had on him and his career, noting that Let's Dance, quote, put me in a real corner and that it fucked with my integrity. I remember looking out over these waves of people who were coming to hear this record played live and thinking, I wonder how many Velvet Underground albums these people have in their record collections. I suddenly felt very apart from my audience, and it was depressing because I didn't know what they wanted. Now, when I wrote the original blog entry for this show on Open Salon um, in early 2013, I said, while he has released some very good albums in the intervening years, particularly Heathen, but also Black Tie, White Noise, all of his releases have contained at least a few cuts to recommend. He's never issued something that could truly follow Scary Monsters, although he may have finally just done so last week with the next day, which that I was writing this a week after that. I also disagree with this statement now. I love Heathen. I would put Heathen, I've really grown on to love that one through the years. That need that if you're looking for essential Bowie albums to have, that's one of them. Also, um, our reality, the album that followed it up, that's another one. It, it's a lesser dick disc, it's not as good as heathen but again this one's really that one's really grown on me through the years i really feel in this century he really came back he made four albums two of them heathen and especially black star are absolute classics 
and the other two are really, really good. The next, the next day I think is excellent, but the material, more material with, from that was released later on and with other mixes. And I, I have a track listing for that, that I think wouldn't put it on par with the other two as it was released. I think they could have sequenced it and chosen the tracks better. It was excellent, but it could have been absolutely killer. And reality, as I said, I really come around on that one. After the next day, which is when I was initially writing this piece, and the next year he brought out that single Sue in a season of crime, which was by far the most experimental thing he'd done over the years, recorded with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, jazz orchestra. And I was, I remember that coming out and blowing my mind, like, oh, wow, he's really doing some wild stuff here. And of course, it laid the um, groundwork for Black Star. And I so remember buying Black Star. Now, even this dates things from a few years ago. I was at HMV on the Friday morning. There's not even HMVs over here anymore. And I remember buying it and getting it home and putting it on. And it's like, <gasps> this is it. He has finally got back to the quality of work and experimentation he was doing in the late 70s and also coming up with a totally new sound for him. And I thought, my God, this is the beginning of a whole new period of creativity for him. It sort of reminded me of when uh, Bob Dylan did Time Out of Mind. And it's like, okay, you've totally resuscitated yourself. And then, of course, he dies two days later. Oh, boy, what a bummer. This wraps up my look back at this unforgettable Bowie show from 1983. Now, I've also written and podcasted about the last time I saw David Bowie, the final time, in episode five, concert number, uh, concert number 104, titled Never Get Old. David Bowie with the Polyphonic Spree, the Corel Center, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, April 2nd, 2004, and Cublets on that one with me as we went to the show together. And if the 1983 gig was the most exciting Bowie show for me, that last concert in 2004 may have been the best Bowie show I saw from a musical and set list standpoint. And it was also the closest seats I ever had. So check out that uh, episode if you enjoyed this one. And he'll be coming up uh, in the series three more times with his next visitation as concert number 41, Never Let Me Down, David Bowie with Duran Duran and the Spoons, CNE Stadium, Toronto, Ontario, Monday, August 24th, 1987. So I returned to see him again a few years later, although the second time is a bit less sweet from the first. It was kind of the only sort of disappointing show, but that's coming down the line. It's still a lot to talk about. Uh, interesting stuff on the way. So up next on stage, I'll be looking back at my final 1983 gig going entry by recapping a couple of shows I took in during a crazy nuts four-day trip to New York City. While I'll be discussing the performances by hardcore titans The Circle Jerks and post-throbbing gristle offshoot Psychic TV, I'll also be looking at the madcap trip to Manhattan as a whole, uh, recounting the hijinks that MZ, Miss B, myself, and some others got up to. If you've heard or read episode 25 on the Flipper show at Freifogel's, then you'll have some idea of what to expect. And of course, the original blog entries are up on the My Life in Concert site uh, for uh, both of these shows. So tune in for Destroyed Hotel Rooms, Terrified Cousins, Peace, Love, and Groove, Danceteria Bathroom Hallucinations, Brooke Shields' Husband, Broadway Bob, and pterodactyls and manifestations in episode 30, Back Against the Wall and Disco Pravity, The Circle Jerks at the Reggae Lounge on Wednesday, November 16th, and Psychic TV at Danceteria on Thursday, November 17th, both in New York City in 1983. Please remember to like, follow, subscribe, and hit the notification bell where applicable on our Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram pages. And please leave your memories of any of the gigs I'm writing or podcasting about on the platform 
of your choice. Additionally, once again, there are my Spotify playlists for this episode, MLIC Prompt, David Bowie, Time Span, C90, 1964 to 2016, a uh, cassette length overview of his whole career from 1964 to 2016, and MLIC David Bowie Goldmine, my favorite deep cuts, outtakes, and live tracks from 1964 through 1983. And finally, if you've enjoyed the podcast, be sure to tell your Toonhead friends about the sprightly and satisfying experience that is mylifeinconcert.com tell your stoner aunt susan tell your rambling uncle ron with that rare original stereo pressing of the beatles please please me lp tell the live music junkies in your life tell the lady who puts the little plastic robins on the christmas cakes just tell them And finally, I'd like to say a big thanks to listeners both new and returning for taking the time to tune in. This is your host, Various Artists, signing off, and we'll meet up at the next concert. See you then and see you there. Bye for now. (laughs) 